You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. We are so happy to have you here to help us celebrate Allison B. Hart's The Work Wife, and she'll be in conversation with Julia Phillips. My name is Natalie. I'm the Assistant Events Manager at Skylight Books. Allison B. Hart's writing has appeared in Joyland Magazine, Literary Hub, The Missouri Review, The Millions, The Offing, and The Florida Review. She is the co-founder of the long-running reading series at Pete's Candy Store and received her MFA from the New School. She grew up in Los Angeles and now lives in North Carolina with her family. The Work Wife is her first novel. And she'll be in conversation with Julia Phillips, who is the debut author of the international best-selling novel Disappearing Earth, which was a finalist for the National Book Award. A Fulbright Fellow, Julia has written for the New York Times, The Atlantic, and the Paris Review. She teaches at Randolph College MFA program and is the founder of the online event series Lit Mixer. Thank you both so much for being here. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks, Allison. Congratulations. Hi. Hi, on your gorgeous debut novel. Uh, Thank you. Everyone might know already, but I think we should praise it again. The Work Wife has been called One Hell of a Debut by Kirkus. I'm, I personally couldn't agree more. It's propulsive and immersive and thrilling and I think heartbreaking. The book's excellence makes perfect sense when you consider it's written by one hell of a person. I think I see already a lot of folks in the chat already know Allison, but if you don't, I wanna say she's the kindest, wisest human being around. She's a consummate literary citizen. And if I may say an extraordinary friend. So Allison, it's an honor for all of us to get to be here with you and celebrate the accomplishment of your novel tonight. This is such a thrill. Oh my gosh, thank you. Thank you for doing it. And thank you to Skylight for having me. And thanks to Natalie for getting us all set up here. And thank hello to everybody in the chat. I see you all. I love you. <laughs> for folks watching and chatting, we're going to have a conversation together, uh, Allison and I. And then Allison will start answering questions from you around 6.45 PM. So just as Natalie said, throw it in the chat. Use the Ask a Question button. Um, start peppering those in there, and, and we'll be sure that Allison will answer. We're, I know both really excited to hear your thoughts. And Allison, I was wondering if you would mind telling us in your own words what The Work Wife is about and reading a bit from it. Sure. Um, so The Work Wife is set in Hollywood and it's set over the course of one day and it follows, it's told from the perspective of three women who are in the orbit of um, a famous director slash movie mogul. Um, and so one is his personal assistant, one is his wife, and one is his ex-business partner. And, um, you know, that it's, it's mostly told in the estate where he and his family live and where his personal staff um, is around them, swirling around them all the time. And there's a big fundraising party happening in the evening. And um, so all of these women are eventually going to make their way there. And they all have secrets. Things happen. So that's broadly what it's about. Um, I'm going to read a short section from chapter one, which is told from Zan's point of view. Zan is the personal assistant. Um, so what you need to know is Zan is um, 38. Um, she works at this, she works at the estate. Um, in the back of the estate is like a ring of cottages. 
um, where all of the staff is working in each of these little cottages. Um, and so on the day that the book takes place, um, Zan is covering for the chief of staff. So it's a really big day for her because if she's doing a good job, she might get promoted to chief of staff. Um, and, you know, she's also uh, got a lot of uh, um, concerns about the party going well tonight. So uh, here we go. At 6.30 a.m., an email crashed into Zan's inbox, shattering her flow. Monkey got loose in the server cage. Come quick. 90 seconds later, Zan stood among the small crowd of landscapers gathered at the end of a long hall in the IT cottage, fingers pressed against their ears to tune out the high-pitched screeching. She poked her head inside the server room to confirm with her eyes what her ears already knew. Yep, that right there, crouched atop the racks, was Alfie, an escaped capuchin monkey that was supposed to be adorable in a suit and well-behaved and good with all people, including children. Instead, he was losing it. Shit show, Zan said under her breath. If only Bill, the animal handler, had arrived on time at 10 a.m. instead of keeping farmer's hours, this would have been the events team's problem and not hers. Then again, you could go down a rabbit hole of if onlys. If only Holly Stabler hadn't thought a jungle nursery theme for tonight's party would be cute. If only academic jobs grew on trees. If only capitalism didn't exist. Life had taught Zan to let go of hypotheticals and deal with the conditions before her. She shouted at the others, where's Bill? One of them pointed to the storage room next door where a ladder was set up beneath the access panel to the cottage's attic. She climbed up and popped her head in the vaulted space. How's it going, Bill? She hollered. Bill Jorgensen, solidly built with a full beard that had already gone white, could have had a thriving film and TV career as Santa Claus. Surprised to see her, he hiked up his jeans by the belt. I thought maybe I could get him from above, but if I punch down through the ceiling, I'll get debris all over him. And the server, she shouted. That too, he said, nodding. Jesus Christ, Sam said quietly, wondering for the millionth time how so many men got their stellar reputations when all she'd ever seen them be was average. Come on down, Bill, she said. Sam hopped off the ladder and went down the hall to where the IT workstations were set up. She followed the maze of gates strong enough to protect state secrets grabbed server cage keys from the safe, and doubled back in time to find Bill pleading with Alfie to settle down, bud. Alfie would not. At the sight of Zan, he shrieked his displeasure. She flinched. What was that sound? Part pig, part cricket, part laser to the meat of her brain. She put the key in the padlock and paused. Now, Bill, she said, when I open this cage, are we going to have a problem? Alfie's my best baby. Don't worry. I got this. Okay. Get ready. Zan turned the key in the padlock and opened the cage door. Alfie stopped vocalizing, watching with interest, as Bill walked in to comfort him, arms outstretched as if reaching for his son. That's right, bud. You're such a good boy. Or was he? Alfie screeched, jumped on Bill's head, punched him in the air, and scrambled down his back and out of the cage. Zan watched it happen, powerless to do anything but jump out of the way. Bill spun around like a confused tornado, out in the hall, the landscapers let out a chorus of expletives. Bill tore after his monkey down the corridor and out the front door, the men close at their heels, leaving behind a stench that reeked of smoke, something electric, and faintly of urine. An archipelago of droplets lay on the tile floor, and the main server began to hiss. Fuck me, Zan said. She pulled out her phone and dialed the IT manager. 
I'm 20 minutes out, he said, a note of panic in his voice as if he'd been caught out past curfew. The monkey pissed on the server. We need to switch over to the backup. I, ah, uh, Zan could hear his gears turning, trying to yoke those three disparate words, monkey, pissed, and server, into the kind of logic problem MIT had trained him to solve. Now, Greg, talk me through it, she said. The next 10 minutes were tense and ridiculous. Not the red wire, I said the blue wire, like they were in their own buddy cop movie. But also strangely satisfying for Zan to have foreseen, if not the monkey itself, then the possibility of network failure, to have averted it by good planning, to have been the one, always the one, to make things right. It was why Ted and Holly Stabler had hired her, why she'd climbed so quickly up the ranks of their personal staff of 30. Afterwards, Zan filled a bucket with soapy water and mopped the floor clean, allowing herself this brief moment to do one thing well before she returned to the problem of the monkey. So many parts of the job were like this, almost soothing in the precision and patience they required if you could find your way past the ludicrous penality to meditative enjoyment. She made it outside just as Bill coaxed Alfie down from a fig tree, slip, slipping a leash over the monkey's head. Zan tugged at her short black hair. Nothing surprised her about this job anymore. Not the range of competencies it required from a fluency with security protocols and two-factor authentication to an encyclopedic knowledge of Minecraft and LOL surprise dolls, or the succession of raises she'd received, each bigger than the last, or the deep sense of personal responsibility she felt to make the Stabler family's dreams come true, come what may of her own. Now she could add monkey wrangling to her resume too. What I tell you, Bill said, beaming at Zan as if he'd just lassoed the moon. Alfie's my, Alfie's fired, Bill, she said. Today was too important to the Stablers and to her future here to be derailed by predictable chaos. Zan would keep this day on track and nothing, not an ill-behaved monkey or a tech disaster or a ho-hum party would get in her way. And the stage is set. Ta-da, indeed. Alfie, so good. So good. Oh, my gosh. I have so many questions for you. I have questions for you about the pacing. I have questions for you about, well, I, I want to ask you questions now about monkey research and how you research the noise of, how, how, do, you, how do you know the noise of a completion monkey, half cricket, um, half pig? You have a daughter who will help you Google videos, and then you just watch them. And then you realize that they are very cute and excitable. And that it, that's, that the, you could never possibly want to be that close to the sound. Like just yeah. on the video is enough for me. And they sound like they're just full of urine at all. Like just <laughs> I mean, that's how I imagine them. I don't know. Like the <gasps> excitement would just like make it happen, I think. Of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. But I'm ready for an animal expert to correct me on that. <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's, let's see if anyone's in the chat. Uh, any monkey wranglers? Um, I yes. can imagine. You know, this is this is a very LA book. This is a very LA, you know, bookstore. So maybe we have our monkey wranglers here, just as they are in the <laughs> in the novel. Also, it's such a pleasure to get to talk with you during the the first few days your book is in the world. Now we all get to say all of us that we were we were here when it started. So what two days into pub week? Right? Yep. Book came out on Tuesday. How are you doing? How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. The vibe is good. <laughs> the vibe is a little tired, but the vibe is really good. Um, no, it's been just like really lovely. Like 
Um, on Tuesday, I was just joking that it was like my wedding day. Like it was just so much energy and like all these people that you know from all the different pockets of your life. And, um, you know, so many people here on this chat who were also there at my wedding. Um, so it's definitely, it's a little like, and then like three days before that, it felt a little like um, I was nine months pregnant. So it's definitely like all the big life moments for sure. Yes, all of them. But, um, and I don't sleep very well, but, uh, but, in, but good. It's good. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. And just every, every big life event rolled up into one. Yeah. Will you, will you give us that kind of origin story for this momentous occasion? How, how did the work wife come to be? What inspired the story? What road did it travel before it arrived as a book that we can hold in our hands? Sure. So a couple of things. So um, the first one is that I myself worked as a personal staff for a wealthy family. Completely different situation. Very important just to mention that this is like a work of fiction, total fiction. I'm not trying to like draw from my own personal experience. Um, but I did do that work for a number of years. Um, and, you know, it's it's a bizarre situation. I think, you know, even the people I work for would agree. It's, it's a it's a weird thing to to be um, that um, intimate with people that you only know for that job. I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of relationships like that. I mean, like if you have a, if you have somebody looking after your child, that's another form of it. So I'm not saying it's unique, but but when when it is like a family office, like like what Sam is working, it can be um, just very interesting. So I knew that that premise was. Um, was an interesting premise. Um, but when I first tried to write about it um, many years ago, I saw the whole thing differently and I was picturing it um, as a collection of linked stories, which was when you and I met because you were working on Disappearing Earth as well, um, which, you know, eventually morphed into a novel, but, but you know, definitely started with the kernel of these stories. So I, um, you know, I, I think you and I have, have are drawn to similar things there. Like I, I always liked having that like canvas of characters, but when I was thinking of it, um, you know, in the in the very center were some of the characters in in the current book as it as it is now. But it rippled out. It was trying to be like a visit from the Goon Squad, which you know, like there can only be one. Jennifer Egan already did it. Sorry. Um, I think a great role model, a great role sure, model for all of us. Right. Excellent book. Why wouldn't, why shouldn't we all try and do that? Um, Absolutely. So I, I was thinking of it as stories and they were all looking at, they were all like a different view on marriage, but it didn't sell. Um, lovely book didn't sell. Um, and so I moved on and started writing other books and then over time realized, oh, I, I, I think I'm more of a novelist. I think I understand kind of how novels are put together. Um, maybe not better than a short story collection, but I just do, um, I, I feel like I, I started feeling the pull towards novels. And over time I started to like think back to these characters and think about how I would do it if I were gonna do it as a novel. And it was, you know, I, it was, it was. It would be very different. I would get rid of all the ripples on the edges, and I would focus in in the center. And I would, you know, would have a different shape and span of time. It would be one day. Another thing that was different was that um, when I had been working on it as a story collection, it was. It was. It was not set in a specific moment in time. There wasn't a particular year I was thinking of. It was kind of 
almost apolitical in that way, you know, could have been in the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s. And by the time I started thinking about it as a novel, I thought that's actually a problem if I can think about what year it's in, because, you know, all of those time points have different things, uh, characteristics about them that are important totally. and should have and, and should influence the book. So. Um, by the time I wanted to do it as a novel, Me Too was in, in was in full swing, and that felt like yeah, that that's part of this. That's part of this story, um, and so that's uh, that's kind of some of what was going on in my thinking when I was working on it. This is so incredible, Allison. You know, it's so funny. I, when we met, I think your short story collection was on submission and I read a couple, I got to read a couple stories from it. And I think I only read the, the ripples from the outer edges. So I didn't, oh, I didn't really, I read stories that were, you know, set in a different country. I remember what, and like, yeah, I, I didn't realize that the, the center was the same world. Not until this moment, this is blowing my mind. This is incredible. Yeah. So the, the long journey that, that our stories take to become what they are. It's just amazing. Yeah, long, long, long. Long, 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 and exactly the journey it needed to take. I mean, yeah. you, you talked you talked about the structure that you came up with, that, that you wanted to tie it to a specific time, to a specific place, um, like really focus in on what the center of the story was. And, and I know you've mentioned it, it, that this novel gives us a single day in the life of these three women as Hollywood yeah. directors, like ex-wife, current wife, and his work wife. So can you talk a little bit more about the sort of decision to land on or the moment of revelation to land on that story shape and those characters and then how you mm -hmm. channeled each of their distinct voices? Each of them is so different and they, and they have these like uh, roles that are in some ways overlapping and in other ways um, so distinct from each other. Yeah. How'd you get to that? Uh, so, yeah, so I, I mean, I think Zan came to me first or the, or yeah, I think Zan came to me first, um, probably because, you know, because of, because I had done her work and I sort of understand that, um, just that mental state of being like, you know, right at the top of like your capacities all the time, like really hustling hard um, and trying to um, be, yeah, just, try, just scrambling and being as professional as possible. Um, and then the, so when I actually wrote it as a novel, the, the first draft was all her perspective. Um, and I wanted to just see how quickly I could do it. Um, so I did it with the, you know, the Na NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month. Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So what, what year is this? We're talking like, like 2018? 2018. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So I didn't get it done in the month, but I think it took me two. So that for me, that's, two months. I mean, for most people, that's, a, that's very fast. That's, a, that's the stuff of legend, I think. That's incredible. It is now. We're, ma wow. we're making, we're creating the legend right now. Yeah. Um, so I wrote it really fast um, and it was super lean and mean. It was very short. It was like novella length, um, which was fine. I didn't want it to have any extra, you know, fluff on it. I wanted it to just like be like a race car. Um, but by the time I got to the end, I realized that, um, you know, I had this character of Phoebe 
And I realized that I was kind of having to pretzel myself a little bit to find ways for Zan to contain um, a, a knowledge of Phoebe's past and some awareness of her, you know, thinking on things that was like, how am I going to, how am I justifying this? Like I was bending the plot a little bit too far. And so when I got to the end of the first draft, I was like, no, this needs to be two, two characters. So I did it again. My, my revision was adding Phoebe's perspective. Um, and so Phoebe, Phoebe is, um, is Ted's ex-business partner. They met in college um, and they collaborated as in, in film and, um, and even sort of, and then even became married. Although I don't know that it was widely known at the time that they were, that they were married. Um, and then something happens, which I won't spoil their partnership dissolves and she, you know, leaves LA and lives a different life, but is not able to have the kind of career that she wanted for herself or that she sees him having, like he blows up into, you know, this lion of Hollywood. Um, and she, after making two of his first films that he becomes famous for kind of disappears from the scene. Um, she's also, um, Korean American, um, and I should say that Zan is also gay. And so there were like certain things right away that I knew was make, were gonna make Zan and Phoebe very different and have different perspectives. You know, Zan worked for Ted, Phoebe worked with Ted. Um, you know, Phoebe was his lover, Zan was not. Phoebe's white, uh, wait, Zan's white, Phoebe's Korean American, one is gay, one is straight. You know, they, there were some key things that were gonna make them different. Um, and then later on in the process, when I, when I, sent it out on submission, it was a two perspective story. And my editor, Melanie, who was the one who acquired it, um, said, well, what about showing Holly's perspective? And I thought that was really interesting. And I and, and after we talked about it, I, uh, I really saw the argument for it. So I went back and added um, Holly's perspective, which was really fun to do. Um, and so Holly is Ted's wife um, and I knew that I knew that Holly, just by definition, I wanted Ted's two the Ted's two wives to have been very different. Um, you know, Phoebe was his peer. They were the same age. They did the same work together. When he meets Holly, um, it's much later. He's already famous. Um, there's a 15 year age gap between them, and so he's a, a trustee among his many things that he does he is also the trustee at an art school where uh holly was a student and so that's how they met so there was always kind of a, pow a power imbalance um and, and and she sort of had to join his world rather than him tack toward her world in any way um so i knew that that was gonna create a lot of difference between her and Phoebe. Um, and then of course she and Zan would be much different because she is Zan's boss too, even though Zan mostly reports to Ted um, because of the nature of uh, a personal staff, she's working for both of them. Um, and so they have a very different relationship. Um, you know, Zan thinks of herself as um, extremely capable and she thinks of Holly as somebody who's sort of got a little bit of a learned helplessness about her. So, um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it, it can be very easy to kind of 
right with your own same psychology for all three characters. So I knew I needed to like come up with some structural ways to make them very different from each other so that I wouldn't do that because it's an easy thing to fall into as I'm sure you know too. Not because I've seen you yeah. do it, just because you're such a good writer no, too. You know the pitfalls as well. Um, and I thought, I think you are, as you are perceptive in life, I think really perceptive on the page. I find that sometimes I like try to differentiate folks, but then give them one overlapping quality that is mine that I don't realize I have. So that I think you just do such a good job at teasing your characters apart and making sure that they're in thrilling tension with each other. One, I think very deliberate overlap with all three of these focus characters is that they grapple with, in some way with how the demands of their lives have forced them to change their relationship with their art. And, and I would say like compromise um, in their art sometimes mm -hmm. or, or have to face compromising in their art. And I, you know, you're a working writer yourself. You, you I'm sure know the struggle intimately. How did you develop each of their separate relationships with and also the kind of compromises they need to struggle with for their artistic passions? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, oh, I feel like this one might be something that I did kind of in the back of my head a little bit, you know? Um, so, you know, Holly is an artist who who still, she kind of more dabbles now, right? Her, um, her artistic career was never going to be able to take precedence over Ted's because she just met him too late in life, you know? And I just don't think she would ever have thought she could say, how about you don't make any movies this year and we put me first for a bit. I don't think she would ever have thought she could have asked for something like that. Um, it's not the relationship that they have. Um, so it really takes a back seat. It's something that um, it's not, it, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't slot into the career place in her brain. Um, Zan is somebody who writes, she's always got a notebook in her, in her pocket and she's been, and she writes little thoughts down all the time, but she sort of doesn't know what to do with them. Um, and I think she thinks of herself as like a frustrated writer, but maybe not. I think in the course of the book, she's trying to figure out like, what am I supposed to be doing? Like, am I, and, and I think she knows she's not really doing, you know, fulfilling her life's purpose. She definitely knows she's not fulfilling her life's purpose in this job. But I don't think she knows yet what what the purpose is. And is it writing or is it not? So she's like in some she's in a um, I think she wants to be creative, but isn't sure if it if she's supposed to be the driving force of whatever is being created or is she's supposed to be in a helping role or quite what. Um, and then Phoebe, I think Phoebe has always known that she wanted to, to create. Um, you know, she loved film even as a little girl. She felt like a little bit of an oddball in her world for, for um, how much she loved it. Um, and, you know, had this, you know, this wonderful partner originally in Ted, it, it, it helped, she, you know, they helped bring out the best in each other. Um, but once she has to leave LA, she's not given the, um, the resources and the assistance and the sort of backing that he's given. You know, I mean, cinema is like a very collaborative art form, 
right? And for especially for the kinds of ideas that she has, the kind of movies that she pictures doing, which you know are big spectacles, they they really want a big budget, and she's never given that big budget. She has to make it. She makes a film um, by herself, and that on this day she's in LA to try and sell it. So she is, I think very in tune with her creative identity, but she has always had to have a day job. She's a teacher. Um, she's always had to have a day job. It's always had to fit in around it. Um, and, um, you know, I think she's just dying to be given her chance. Um, so they're all kind of struggling with it in a little bit of a different way. Um, but yeah, I think I did it kind of in a like unconscious kind of back of my head sort of way. Um, a little less design with that one. I don't know. Yeah, it's maybe that's the way the best art stuff happens. I mean, it, it's so powerful, I think, to see this theme worked out through these different characters in these different ways, through these different forms too. Like each one of them pursues a different kind of artistic form of artistic expression. It's, it's just beautiful. Yeah. And I know you wrote for New York Magazine recently about, you mentioned that you quit your day job this spring. And I was wondering if your own journey, if this is too much to ask, we can, I can, I've got other questions too, but I was wondering if your own journey with your job in any way was informed by or developed alongside the characters' journeys in your novel. Like did writing this novel, either logistically or thematically um, kind of push you to a different place with your work, your day, your yeah. day job work. I mean, I don't think it was so much like one led to the other, but I think I was thinking about these things. Like I think these, in writing this book, I was thinking a lot about, you know, women's ambition and, um, and power and privilege and complicity and power imbalances. And um, so I, I was definitely thinking about all of those. And then I was also, you know, you can't do that without also thinking about your own life and where you are in your own life. Um, so I'm sure they were related tracks in my mind, but not like consciously, you know, or I, I guess I, I, I'm somebody, I'm, I'm just very practical. And, um, you know, I, I have a family and always wanted to be very responsible. And, you know, this, this, this book, I mean, I'm not a spring chicken. I'm in my late forties. This is my first book is not the first book I've tried to sell. It's just the first one that did. And so given that reality, I always had to have a day job. Um, but you know, you get frustrated about all the compromises that you have to make in your life overall, but also with your, with your job, when you know that there's this other thing you want to be doing. So I always had, I always had the job. Um, I think, um, I, but I, I think the, I think the things that I was thinking about work, about like, what can we reasonably expect work to give us? What can we reasonably get from these relationships? How mutual can these relationships that we're having be? Um, and it's so easy to think of like your work as your family, you know? I mean, 
the work wife is is uh, one of the things I love about this title is it's got sort of a double meaning to it because a lot of us will call somebody with great affection. This is my work wife, you know, and that means that this is like your your outlet and the person that you love and the person that you've been to. And I think it can be when you are like maybe two people in the trenches and you're both at like the same status and maybe down low or something, you know, like then that works to call this person your when your work wife. But there's also can be um, a way like Zan is Ted's work wife, but not in the good way, you know, like she's she's taking all she's uh, he is offloading all of this labor to her that is not just labor. A lot of it is emotional labor that he gives to her and she takes it and she does it. And obviously, as women, we do a lot of emotional labor in the other areas of our life, too. So I was definitely thinking about that in the book as well as in my life. Um, I guess that that's how they feel connected to me. This makes so much sense. I, I guess it makes so much sense. That's how fiction functions, I guess. It, it, it's a way to kind of work out with these characters in this world, something that we're thinking about or obsessing about even or something that kind of is preoccupying in our own lives. There's that, did that um, review in the Chicago Review of books come out today. It was so wonderful. It did. It did. Yeah. Um, and if the folks haven't in the chat haven't seen it, there's just the, the Chicago, Chicago Review of Books did a review. It came out today. Um, and it's it's the first review I've seen that's really talking about like this aspect of it. Um, and it was really great. I loved reading it because I was like, yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I was thinking about. And I think that the title of it was something about like the delusion of work loving you back. Because you're like, yes. your work can't love you back. Yeah. And once yeah. you realize it can't love you back, then there's a ceiling on how much you can love it, kind of, you know, if right. it's not something where you really are a team and you're all getting something out of it. So yeah. Yeah. Like you said, like what can you what can you expect from it? What what do you want it to give you? Do you want it to give you love? If that's the case, mm -hmm. you may be disappointed. Yeah, and I think Zan is. I think Zan's deal is. I'm not going to ask it to give me any of that. She thinks she's, a, she's like smarter than everybody else. Like, hey, we all know the bargain that we've made. It's just giving us money. That's it. Like, and so as long as you're cool with that, then great. Um, and I've certainly had times where I've tried to like operate by that as well. Like this, this doesn't have to be everything for me. It's just the money. Um, and that's great. But in her case, not, not she's always being, great. Not great. You know, yeah. not great, Bob, yeah. um, because she's being pulled into um, some work that's really compromising for her. Um, and if all she's getting out of it is the money, that's not great. Absolutely. Absolutely. I um, so I will always remember that when I um, sold my book, you took me out to a fancy dinner and you asked me really kindly, which I forgot to pay for, right? And then we had to go and do that. it again. Yeah, I think that's what happened. We split. Oh, no, I forgot. We split the check, and then I was like, "Wait a minute." <laughs> I forgot that part. I remember so being taken out fancy dinner so that I could pay for it. So maybe I, I made such a fuss over the second one, but that's why you remember it. I know uh, maybe it was a pre, I was All pre I remember for the fancy dinner but... I needed to yeah. take you to when, no, no, no. prior to your moving to North Carolina. Mm. But I remember at that dinner, you're saying like, so are you in therapy? Because if not, now is a good time to start. <laughs> and this was the best possible pre-publication advice. Like I tell it to people 
all the time. I, it's, I yeah. take that question. I always credit. I'm like, Allison Hart told me that now is a perfect time for self therapy. <laughs> oh, and now so it was really good. And now I want to use this obviously public forum yeah. to turn it back around on you. I was wondering how you took care of yourself, whatever way you took care of yourself during the writing and publication process in this book and how you kind of navigated the stresses of not only forming this fictional world, but putting it out into the non-fictional world. Yeah. Um, it's a lot to do. It is. Um, well, shout out to my therapist. Always. I've been in therapy for a long time, so that was super helpful. Um, yeah, it was tricky because it all went down um, during the pandemic. You know, I was... Um, revising it when the pandemic hit and then I had to stop for a while because didn't we all you know you just you were so terrified about what was going on in the world and didn't know if there would even be like books at the end of it um so yeah when I went it sold on election day in 2020 and then I was revising it during it and um and I had a new job that um the, the job that I have now quit but I started that like one week into the lockdown. So it was a really stressful time. Um, so I definitely um, needed a lot of help from my family, you know, from my husband and my daughter to just understand that there were going to be times where I was just like up to here with like work and then also revising, and, you know, what have you. Um, I think another thing I did to take care of myself was quitting the job. Honestly, you know, it wasn't something that I went in with a master plan about like, how, you know, I wasn't like figuring out numbers on the back of a spreadsheet, like how much money can I make and then I'm going to quit. You know, I my plan honestly was to do both because it always seems like the smartest thing. Have a job so you don't need to rely on this and worry. And, blah, blah, blah. and eventually I just realized I was like, oh, God, I can't. I'm, I'm trying to do both and I can't do both. And I had to choose the thing that you know, I knew that if I didn't do my best job with this book, I was gonna be so crushed and disappointed with myself. So that was a big one too, I was quitting. Um, That's a huge one. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, honestly, I think a lot of it is like therapy, marry the right person and quit my job. And then walks, walks are always good. I think, I think to me, that seems like the four, um, pillars, the four essential pill. Yeah. Pillars of a perfect life. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I can't imagine like a better way to be an adult than that. That sounds pretty ideal. I, I have read some interviews where you talk about, um, kind of over the course of your writing career, moving to, as you said, like this, this manuscript has gone on, uh, a long journey. This is not the first book you've written. And you've talked about how you didn't used to focus on pacing in your writing as much. And and of this, of the work life's many strengths, one of it, its greatest in my view is its pacing. It moves so confidently and quickly that we like never lose interest in what's going on. It never kind of, it never goes too fast, but it never lets us go. It's a total page turner. And I was wondering when you started giving particular attention to how a plot moves. And, and I was also wondering how, from a craft perspective, you developed your skill in it. How do you do it? Tell us so we can do it too. <laughs> Good please, question. Please. I don't know. I think the pacing, I think that maybe that is the thing that I'm talking about when I felt like I started making that shift 
from the linked stories to the novel. Because I feel like a linked story, mm -hmm. the pacing, you're supposed to be able to take as long or as little as you want with story yeah. collection, right? Lots of people, yeah. when they're reading a story collection, will put it down and then come back like a week later. Like they, you want to like pause at the end of a story and like just like let it sit with you for a little bit. But that's not the feeling you're supposed to have at the end of a chapter, right? Like at the end of a chapter, you want to go straight to the next chapter. Like it's the next episode of a TV show you're binging and you just want to keep going and find out what goes next. So I think that shift uh, must have been in the last 10 or 12 years when I started making that shift as a writer. Um, but I think it, in a way, I think it was just like coming back to something that in me that I always had just from being like such a huge TV junkie and watching, you know, some because like pacing is so important in TV too. So um, I think the other thing was just um, the structure, having the structure for this book, also because it has three perspectives. It's set in one day and it has three perspectives and I want to keep it moving, but it's very complicated to figure out where you're going to put your plot points. Cause usually certain plot points, you kind of already know like, Oh, I really, that's going to come in so-and-so's perspective. You know, like that, that has to happen in he, Holly's part. It would be weird or wrong to see it from Phoebe's point of view. So if it needs to be in Holly's, point of view, like I ended up having to have a way to um, externalize all of this and not hold it in my head. It was too much to hold in my head. So what I did was I mapped it out on um, the closet doors in my bedroom. So basically like pretend these are my closet doors and I have all the chapters in color coded. And so um, we're talking like was red. Cards, we're talking post-it post notes. What are we talking post -its. Okay. Yes. Okay. Red. So Holly was red. And then with a little yeah. tape on it because they could fall. Mm -hmm. um, Holly was red because Holly's a red, right? And Phoebe was like bright pink because there's this iconic dress that she's yes. wearing in certain parts of the book that's bright pink. Um, and Zan was orange because um, mm -hmm. it's strong and it pops. And I like the way the three colors look together. So I worked it out on the, I mapped it out. And then as we made changes, because what I what was really fun was working with my editor because my editor Melanie is like very into this kind of plot stuff too. Like I think that was like what made us click and want to work together. Um, so when she would have these suggestions, she's like, "I think that needs to happen slightly earlier." And what would be great is if that one came slightly at the end, and I'd be like, "How?" And I but it would help me to stand in front of the wall. I was on the phone with her just like looking in front of the wall and being like, well, if it comes later, it can only come there. And like, well, what right. do we need like to change to your, make it go there? Yeah. Yeah. The tape, scratch it out, write it in over here. Um, so that, I guess that's part of it with pacing. Like part of it is knowing that like the, you know, you want to feel like you're being, like you're jumping. You want to feel like you're being tugged to the next thing, like in a TV show, like that TV vibe. And part of it is just really recognizing that there's a structure. And if pacing is important to you, then the, I think the structure has to be important to you as well. I, I mean, maybe there are other people who do it without thinking about structure, but to me, structure is important. I, I subscribe to that wholeheartedly. I, I, I buy that completely. Hi, hi, Natalie. Hello, everyone. Um, 
if we're at a good point, I wanted to jump in. I have some questions yeah. here. Sure. Okay. So the first question is, what was the most fun part about writing this particular story? Oh, good question. Um, so the couple things. Um, one thing that was really fun is, you know, the the the, the book starts with Zan's morning at work. You see her when she has just arrived, and it ends at the end of her workday. So the spine to me in some ways is just her work day. So it was really fun just like throwing one thing after another onto her plate that she had to deal with um, and sort of putting her in these tight spots, like kind of putting the squeeze to her. Like if I had a day like that, I would have quit for sure. Um, I did not have as many things on my plate as, as poor Zan does. So that was really fun. Um, and then another thing was this um, party that's happening in the evening. It's a fundraising party for Holly's pet charity and her, the, that charity raises money and resources for low income mothers and it's called bump to pump. And so having this theme that's like a children's jungle nursery theme and the words bump to pump and like thinking about like, well, who would the sponsors be? And what are the drinks? And, you know, what are the servers wearing? What's the music? And, the, but like having that in your head and then realizing that it can be done at, there's is basically no budget. Like if there's a great idea, they will throw whatever money you need they, that needs to be thrown at it to make it happen. And then um, that also Hollywood expect that any great idea could be acted upon immediately, even if it's day of. Um, so that was all really fun to do too. It was kind of ridiculous and fun. As an event planner, uh, no budget sounds like the ultimate dream. <laughs> <laughs> so I can yeah, imagine totally. that being very fun. Yeah. Um, our next question is, what was the most surprising aspect of the process of getting the work from a short story to a published book? So from beginning to end, what was yeah. the most surprising part of that process for you? Hmm. Um, I get, well, I mean, I guess just that it even worked. <laughs> You know, like the here we are and it like finally happened because there were, you know, a lot of um, different points at which I was told no. So just the fact that I ever got to a yes and that in the, and in my case, it, the yes happened on election day. Like I remember when I was told that I would hear something on election day. Like, I mean, we're talking about Joe Biden and Donald Trump election day, that election day. And I was like, sure we are. Like nobody's gonna, be, no no important meetings are gonna be taking place on that day, despite any like, you know, best intentions. So the fact that like, not only did a meeting happen, but that it like ended up with a good result for me, like shocking, that was, um, so that was pretty surprising. Um, but then just like, like craft wise, I guess just, um, just, I think what was, surprising in a way in terms of like something that I've held on and like learned is just that you can keep trying. You can just always keep trying it a, a different way as long as you believe in the way that you're trying. Like once you have the idea and you think it's a good idea, you should try it and see what happens. You know, don't 
don't do something just to do it or just because the first thing didn't work and you want to please somebody. But like once once the first thing doesn't work, you don't you don't meet with the success that you wanted to. Then you think about it and you talk about it with the friends that you, you know, love and trust, like Julia. And then when you have an idea, you're like, yeah, I could see how that would work. And then you try it. And then sometimes that works. And then you end up with a book at the end. That's, I mean, that is kind of how all writing works, whether you sell the book or not, you just like have an idea and you try it. So that's always pretty surprising to know that like just incremental efforts will result in a book. And then our last one here that I would love both of you to answer yeah. um, is if they were real, which of these characters would you feel closest to? And which of them do you think you would be friends with? Julie, I want you to answer. <laughs> I don't care what I think. I want to know what you think. Uh, I really care what you think and want to know what you think. I, <laughs> I think Phoebe is like quite extraordinary. I, I just think she's a great, a great artist, a great visionary. She leads a cool life. Um, she cares about things that I want to follow her and caring about. You know what I mean? I like, kind of want to follow her lead. I would love to be friends with Phoebe. I don't know if Phoebe would want to be friends with me. Phoebe might be like, uh, I don't have time for this. Like, I got other things to do. Um, I, I feel like Zan, I might be friends with, not because she's the person I admire the most, but because like I could see being with Zan at a you know, if, if she ever has time off of work, I can see being with Zan, like, I guess I was gonna say getting a drink, but not getting a drink, having a seltzer, <laughs> yeah. having a seltzer yes. and uh, her complaining about her job and me being like, okay, you tell me more. complain a lot about this job, but like also tell <laughs> me more. Yeah, exactly. Kind of <laughs> like, I feel like being friends with Phoebe would would uh, be the best, the best road I could travel and uh, being friends with Zan might be a, a lower road, but a very appealing one. Allison, yeah. what's, what's your vibe? Who do you think you'd be friends with? Who would you feel closest to? I kind of agree with you. Like, I'm, um, I think I would want to be friends with Phoebe, but I also wouldn't want to um, be rejected by her and would not want to like impose or assume that she has time or that I'm special enough to be, you know, she's just, she's, she's got plenty of things to do. And she's, she's really she shouldn't special. need me, you know, yeah. she does not yeah. need me. Um, and then Zan, I think Zan, like, of course, because I wrote her, like, I, you know, I feel like I know her heart and she does have a good heart in there. And I would, you know, I think she'd be really funny. And I do think she'd be like a good time. Like, I would totally love to go to a diner with Zan at midnight, for sure. Um, but I also think that on a day-to-day basis, she could be really prickly and, you know, bitchy. I think she could, you know, there could be times where you're just like, oh my God, do you need to go back to bed and wake up again? Do you need to get up on the right side? Like try it. Cause she's just really tough and no nonsense. And so like, I could see her being a little bit scary. Um, and then Holly, you know, I think the exterior of Holly is that um, she's really like, you know, America loves Holly. She's like very beloved as like at this tabloid figure. Um, but in her day-to-day -day life, I think she 
I think she's lost touch a little bit and needs to sort of like come back down to earth and just like do some dishes, you know, like reclaim her humanity a little bit and do some dishes. And then I could be friends with her. I think I for sure could have been friends with her like when, when she was younger. Yeah. Yes. I feel like uh, there, there are a few opportunities in our lives to cross paths with a, with a Holly. Um, but if, if we did get to talk to her, it would be like a very memorable conversation that I would think about for the rest of my life about that time. Reese <laughs> you know, yeah. Witherspoon and she, like, it would just be so, so memorable. So memorable. Yeah. Not to suggest that Reese Witherspoon is a Holly, but, you know, just no, like certainly a person who lives in a very um, rare, very rare area. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Very that was a fun question. Thank you. I have. I have one more question. Well, thank you. You have one yeah, more? Yeah, Julie. I'm so one. sorry. I'm so sorry, Natalie and Allison. But I wanted to ask. No, we're fine. As, as a last question, after readers read the book, what do you want them to take away from it? Like, what is the thing that you most want them to walk away with as a, yeah, a feeling or a lesson? Interesting. Like, nobody asks you that until your book gets published. So I really um, haven't thought about that too much. But I think. What do you mean? You've got I, 48 whole hours to think about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I guess I, I, I want people to think about like part of the deal with making a book set in one day is it has to be a really, really important day in, every, in, in each of these characters' lives and things change for them there. And that can be really scary, but it can also be really great. And I guess I just want people to feel like you can make a big change in your life if you need to. Um, you know, if there's some way that you feel like, you know, either you're on the wrong path or just that like you haven't come into your power and you need to grab power for yourself a little bit more. I just want people to feel like that's possible. Um, if, if any of these stories are inspiring or it just like the fact of it makes you think about what it could be for you. Well, thank you both so much for joining us and for showing us the possibilities of what can happen in a day. So I hope that everyone who has read The Work Wife, who's watching with us or who has not read it yet, is going to go out and change their lives tonight or tomorrow by going out to grab it. Um, Enjoyed our event this evening. And if you know anyone who you know would also enjoy it or you would like to rewatch it um, or re-listen to it, you can do that by clicking the same link that got you here. It'll be available for replay in just a few minutes. Um, That's so cool. I didn't if you know have that. not, yeah, it'll be available and it'll stay up there so you can pass it along to people and people can come back and find it. And if you have not gotten your copy of the book yet, or you know someone who would love it, which I'm sure we all do, you can click the shiny green button at the bottom of your screen to order one from Skylight Books. Thank you all so much for joining us and we hope to see you around soon. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.